0: Good morning, welcome all of you. We are continuing this morning in our series on uh, the king, the king of authority. We are, we are looking at the book of Amos, and we've been working our way through the book of Amos for a couple of uh, weeks now. Uh, the subject matter is kind, of, is kind of getting repetitive, because as we started with Hosea and moved to Joel and now are in Amos, we have, ha- we have this re- repeating concept, God loves you. God is your king, you are his people, you are to live a life that's worthy of his calling, you are to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, live a life worthy of the king. But what we see again and again through these minor prophets is that again and again, God's people absolutely refuse to get in line. They refuse to follow the king. And what we saw in Hosea and Joel and Amos is that there is, a, there is a cause and effect relationship at this stage with God and his people. In other words, God has covenanted with his people. He made an agreement with them. We saw this at Mount Sinai. Um, in other words, you have this, the superior. He makes a covenant with his people. He tells them, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will protect you. I will keep your enemies far from you. I will bless you on the condition that you abide by my law. That is the contract that is set up. And what, what we see, imme- almost immediately, the people of Israel cannot remain faithful to God. And God must punish them, to prod them, to come back to Him. These are two theme. This is the theme that we have come to again. And again, and again, in Hosea, Joel, and now in Amos. And this morning, once again, this is going to be the theme. I'm going to tell you right up front, again, this is our theme. Um, if you're taking notes this morning, the title of, of, the, of the sermon today is God's authority to restore and to destroy. God has the authority to restore His people, and He has the authority to destroy His people. We see this in the book of Amos. In Amos 1, chapter 1, verses chapter 2, 3, we saw that God pours out his judgment upon the nations surrounding Judah and Israel. So at the beginning of the book, Uh, God is pouring out his judgment on on all these nations surrounding Israel and surrounding Judah. And so the original audience at this time, the Israelites, they would have celebrated this. They would have looked forward to this. They would have said, finally, these nations surrounding us are getting theirs. God is bringing judgment upon them. Things, however, take an ironic turn in chapter 2, verse 4. Because here, God turns his attention to judging his own people. In some ways, God's people's judgment will actually end up being more severe than the other nations surrounding Israel because God's people had higher, better, more full exposure to God through the law. Therefore, they were held to a higher standard. It was an immense privilege that Israel enjoyed to actually have uh, the, the privilege of receiving God's law and being God's people. In chapter 3, God elaborates on Israel's guilt. And then in chapter 4, what Brent preached on last week, God warns his people that he has judged them already with a heavy hand. Remember, he is, he's taken their food. He's taken their water. He has struck them with plagues. He has brought enemies to them, so, so they have to fight. They have to go to warfare. God has already brought judgment on his people, and yet they refuse to repent. It's like, it's like there is not much more that God can do in order to break them. The, 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 the next step is, is, is lethal. The next step is nothing short of destruction. Chapter 4 ends with a startling warning. This is what we, we covered last week. Since they have refused to repent, they have spurned God's judgments, and they are going to face His full fury. God's people are on the very precipice of meeting God, and this is not a good meeting. This is not, this is not the, the reunion of, of, of lovers. This is Israel fixing to meet the judge. In our text this morning, we are going to see God's mercy and His judgment. God is the just judge who must punish sin, but he is also the only one who has the right and the authority to restore individuals. No one has to face God's judgment. Nobody has to face it. He offers restoration. And the question before us this morning is, will God's people accept his kind offer of restoration, or will they once again refuse it. That will be what we're turning to this morning in Amos chapter 5. But before we go there, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help in understanding this passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are gathered as your people. We do sing to you. We are amazed at your name when we sing the name of Yahweh. It does maximize our joy in you. It does lift up our hearts' affection for you. We think of your covenant love for us, your redemption of us, It is a great thing to be able to sing out to you and to to praise you and to call you by name. This is a wonderful thing. Father, we are dependent entirely and totally upon your grace. So this morning, I ask that you would help all of us in here to be able to understand your word through your Holy Spirit, illuminate the text to us. Make its meaning clear. Use this flawed instrument to deliver your message. Don't let me get in the way at all, Father. Let your word be clear. Let your people change as a result of it. And let you get the glory. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Again, so we have Israel, they're they're at the precipice of judgment, they're fixing to face judgment again, God is offering restoration, are they going to accept it? Are they going to take him up on his offer? Amos chapter 5 is our text this morning, we'll be covering chapter 5 and chapter 6. So point number 1, verse 1-17, through God pleads with his people. God pleads with his people. We see this in Amos chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. He says this, Hear this word that I take over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. So chapter four, 5 begins with a lamentation, with an, an expression of sorrow. God says, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation. Lamentation. This, this is a word of grief. This is a word of, of, of sorrow. Uh, when someone is lamenting, they usually don't have a smile on their face. To lament is to feel deep grief. There, there, there's a, there's, a, there's a, an aura of tragedy here. God says, hear this word that I take over you in lamentation. Lamentation. Now, this is meant, as, as the reader, this is meant to jar us. This is meant to, to get our attention. And the reason why it, it gets our attention and, and it captivates us is because this is, like, this is like 180 degrees of a turn from where we just were. Remember where in Amos 4, where Brent, um, where Brent ended last week. Uh, turn back with me in your Bibles uh, to... Uh, oh, I'm in Hosea. No wonder why things aren't adding up. Uh, Amos 4. Uh, turn back with me to Amos four. At the end of the at the end of the text, he says, um, "Therefore, um, he says, I overthrew some of you as as when God overthrew us." Uh, so he, in in chapter four, from verse uh, six through. 13, remember, God is tracing all of the judgments that He has given them. Uh, he says in verse 6, I gave you clean, cleanliness of teeth in all your cities. Uh, this doesn't mean that God took them to uh, the, the dentist. That's not what He's saying. He's saying their teeth isn't dirty because there's no food to dirty their teeth. He says, I've given you cleanliness of teeth, a lack of bread. Uh, Verse 7, I've taken away your water. You can't grow anything. Uh, Verse 8, there's famine in the land. People are wandering city to city. There's no food. Verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew. I struck down your, your trees with locusts. Verse 10, I sent you pestilence, plagues after the manner of Egypt. Um, he says, "I overthrew some of I myself overthrew you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to Me." Verse twelve. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So in chapter four, God is recounting all of these judgments that He's brought upon His people, and time after time, they just absolutely refuse to repent. And God says, "Fine. You don't want to repent because I take away your food? You don't want to repent because because I take away your grain? You don't want to repent because you're starving? You don't want to repent because I'm bringing this adversity into your life? Fine. You will meet me. Prepare to meet your God." That's what he says. And this is supposed to this is supposed to terrify us. And then in verse 13 he says, "Behold, He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. God says, Prepare to meet me. I am the God who spoke and the universe came into existence. I am the God who, by the mere word of my power, formed the mountains. I am the God who makes morning darkness and treads on the height of the earth. Brent perfectly captured this picture last week when he described God as skipping among the mountains on the plains of the earth. This is God. He says, "Prepare to meet me." Verse 14, verse 13. The Lord, and if you notice there, Lord is in all caps. This is Yahweh. This is God's personal name. He says, Yahweh, the God of hosts, is his name. If you are a Jew at this time, and you're sitting there, and you're hearing this pronouncement from from Amos, you would be terrified. And as a reader, we're supposed to be engaged, and we're supposed to be feeling the weight of this. We are going to face God in judgment and this is not a good thing this is an absolutely terrifying thing the god who spoke and the world came into existence is now going to call you and i before him into judgment then in chapter 5 we have a real radical break at the end of chapter 4 god is the spurned just judge who is literally going to rain down hellfire on his people. And then in chapter 5, we, we have such a switch. It's, it's, like, it's like whiplash, like, like the car of judgment hits the wall, and boom, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation. God goes from being angry judge who's going to punish them to a hurt lover. He's grieving. And all of us in here, I think, probably, uh, I'm not a parent, but if you're a parent, you probably have times, I would think, um, because I know this is how my parents were, um, sorry, where they were just, like, enraged. Um, you know, Shreya did something really stupid, and, and they were upset. And I'm sitting there, you know, eight years old with my cup of coffee going, Shreya will never learn. And they're angry, right? They could kill her. She's done something horribly dumb. Like in kindergarten, arguing with my dad, telling him she has a boyfriend. No, you don't have a boyfriend. You don't. So, so, so you know, as a parent, you, know, you have these moments of just sheer, uh, maybe rage, I, I'm, I'm just speaking from what I see, I don't know. Um, just, it goes from, from anger and rage, but, but you still love them, so, so you're not going to kill them, so you're also very sad, right? Um, I think any of you who have wayward children, you know how hard this feels. You raise up your children the way they should go, you want them to follow Christ, and they've walked away, and it hurts you. It angers you on the one hand, but, but, you, but you're your parent. You love them. You want what's best for them. You want them to come back. And here it is with God. He's upset. He's angry. He's furious with his people, but he laments for them. He wants them back. In the previous verse, we're told that, God will, that Israel will face the God who forms the mountains, creates the wind, declares thoughts to men, makes the morning darkness, and skips along the heights of the earth. But here, we see God's lamentation. We see God's mourning for his people. God does not enjoy punishing his people in the slightest. It does not, God is not some sort of sadistic, manial, man, man, Well, forget it, I can't pronounce it. Sometimes, you know, it's, here, it's in here, and then it doesn't come out. So it was, it was an impressive word. I'm sorry, I couldn't wow you all. God is not a sadistic being. He's not up there conniving on how he could like kill you. It grieves him to punish. He does not enjoy it. It brings him glory, but it's not something there that he's getting happy and excited about. Ezekiel 33:11, this is God, He says, "Say to them, "As I live," declares the Lord. In other words, I swear to you, you have my word, as I live." Declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God does not enjoy punishing people, God does not enjoy bringing people into judgment. God would have all to repent. God delights when people turn from their wicked way and live. He swears by it says, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So in in Amos 5 here, he says, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. He is grieving. We have a grieving God. We have a hurting parent. We have a spurned lover here. He does not want his people to be judged. Notice the delicate way he describes them in verse 2. This is his lamentation. If you notice um, in your text, verse 5, is, uh, verse five 1 is prose. Um, so it's just, it's just standard writing. But then starting in verse 2, do you notice it breaks into poetry? So, so this is God's song about his people. He says, Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on all her land with none to raise her up. This picture of Israel as a virgin is used repeatedly in the Old Testament. And, and, and God's people being, being portrayed as God's lover is a, is a picture that we've seen displayed again and again in the Old Testament. That's, that, that's like the driving image of Hosea, remember? God's people are his lovers. They should be fully and totally dedicated to him, but instead of following him, they whore themselves out. Remember, we haven't said whore in a while, um, in a couple weeks, so here it is. There, you get your token whore. Um, Israel was, was being a whore. They were not being faithful to God. They were were whoring themselves out. And it was worse than prostitution because at least prostitution, you get payment for it. Uh, Israel was so degenerate, they just did it because they liked it. And and in other places, I think it's Ezekiel or Isaiah, um, God takes this analogy even further and says... Israel is so much a whore, they actually pay other people to come do the act with them. So they're seeking out people. So, so we have this, this picture of God's relationship with his people as lovers. And here we have this picture of, of, of Israel as a virgin. Israel was to be fully devoted to God. They were to be chaste. They were supposed to be solely for him. But instead of keeping herself for her husband, Israel whored herself to other nations. Again, we saw this very clearly repeated again and again in the book of Hosea. So not only is Israel supposed to be solely dedicated to God, but, but their virginity is used... There's, a different, there's another aspect to Israel being described as a virgin. Israel is also vulnerable as a virgin. Like a young girl in a world of predators is the nation of Israel. All of you men in here that have daughters, you're very aware of this, that your daughter is your little girl, and you're going to protect her because this world is filled with predators. This world is filled with people who want to take advantage of her. So so you're going to protect her. And God is describing Israel this way. Israel is like a virgin. It's like she's a young girl, and I'm her guardian. I'm her protector. Thus far, God has been her protector. It was God, it was Yahweh, Delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It was Yahweh who protected them from Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. It was Yahweh who fed them in the wilderness. It was Yahweh who conquered their enemies in the Promised Land. But now, instead of being faithful to Him, instead of seeking Him for their protection, they've forsaken Him and they've resisted Him. Israel has tragically pushed away her only true lover, and her only real protector. And now there will be no one to keep her safe. She is the virgin Israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. Verse 3, For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. God is grieving God is lamenting because his people are going to get wiped out. He said that there, there are going to be, there's going to be cities where there's a thousand people. Or there, there'll be a city from like where a thousand people go out. And from that, go out to war. And from that, only a hundred will return. And there'll be other cities where a hundred men go out to war and only ten return. The, the people of Israel are absolutely going to. To be decimated. This kind of reminds me of um. I'm sorry. I can't help the inner nerd. The inner nerd of Josh Valdez surfaces from time to time. But when I'm reading this, like I get this picture of um. Do you remember in uh, the Return of the King, um, Faramir? He sent out to go to go to go recapture um. It's not, it's not, what is, it? it's not Osgiliath, that doesn't sound right, whatever. You know, the, the city by the, the, the river there, I'm sorry, internet is kind of not shining right now, but you get the idea, like, he is sent out by the steward of Gondor to go out, and it's a suicide mission, and you remember, this, it's like, it's, that, that scene is like powerful. If you remember in the movie, uh, the book's, are, you know, great, but in that movie, it's, it's very powerful. Um, you have the steward of Gondor, he's callously sending out his, his, his own son, to go out there and to kill the orcs. And you have this, uh, you have this thing where, uh, is it Mary? Is it Pippin? Pippin is singing. It's dramatic. And, and the steward of Gondor is just sitting there. He's like this nasty slob. He's eating chicken in the most disgusting way imaginable. It's just so gross. And then the camera zooms up on him. And it's like a, it's just gross. And he's eating this chicken. And he's eating a cherry or whatever he eats. And they're going out into this hopeless mission. They're not coming home. They're going out on a suicide mission. Um, they they are, it's like, uh, it's like they're stealing plans to the Death Star and nobody is coming home. It is, this is like, this is like Rogue One. I mean, I'm sorry, the nerd, okay, we'll put the nerd back in the box. But you get the picture. The people of Israel are going to go out to warfare in, in huge numbers. They aren't coming home. 90% of the men going out to fight are going to be slaughtered on the field. And this brings God incredible grief. Verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba we're all places of worship. Remember, we, we saw these places last week in chapter 4, verse 4 through 5, and we'll go back there. This is, remember, where God is sarcastically telling his people to come, to come worship. He says, "Come to Beth, This is 4, 4. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer of sacrifice of thanksgiving. That which is leavened and proclaimed freewill offerings published him, uh, so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. So so Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba, these were these were the places of worship. And, and God in chapter 4 sarcastically tells them, Yeah, come on over, come worship me. You're living like the devil, but yeah, come on over, come offer your sacrifices. He, he's mocking them. He's being sarcastic with them because in actuality, when people are living in sin and they come and they worship God, It is offensive to him. It is disgusting to him. It is hypocrisy at its highest. And he'll have none of it. So in in Amos 5.4, he says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. Don't even bother worshiping me. I don't want you to worship me, God says. I want you to. To seek me. And this is the difference that we're going to highlight later on in the text. So, why does God tell them not to go to these places of worship? Well, at the end of verse 4, we see, For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. So, God says, Don't even bother coming to these places because I am going to destroy them. Verse 5 Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. God admonishes. God imparts. God tells His people to seek Him. They can repent. They don't have to suffer. They don't have to be punished. But if they refuse to seek God... God will break out like a fire and consume them. Uh, it's, it's funny because um, a lot of times there's, it's very popular in Christianity um, for, for Christian songs to say, you know, let your fire come down. Like, this is a good thing. This is not a good thing. Fire is judgment. And God's saying, don't go there. I'm going to bring down fire and it's going to consume you. Bethel, again, is mentioned because God hates worship that is not paired with obedience and heart's affection. The religious activities actually don't stop the fire, they quench it. So people in Israel at this time were living like the devil, but they were going and they were worshiping, man. They were getting their worship on. And that hypocrisy actually enrages God. And instead of, in their mind, they're going to the temple and they're thinking, we'll appease God. But instead of of, of their worship quenching God's anger, it actually pours gasoline on the fire. They're they're actually making him more enraged. He tells them that they take justice and they turn it into wormwood. What is wormwood? Um, It's a bitter, poisonous extract and, and so it's poison. he says, instead of exalting justice, they throw it down into the depths. They, their, their, their whole orientation, their whole outlook is skewed. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. They're, they're, they're seeing the world upside down, and it is absolutely poisonous. It is wormwood. Chapter, or verse 8 and 9. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns darkness into the morning and darkens the day who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the, Lord, of the earth. The Lord is his name. And uh, um, the, the Lord there is, is, is in all caps. I think it's, yes, is in all caps. Um, I just noticed this morning when I was putting these in, something got wronged in the form, got messed up in the formatting. So um, many of these should be all caps, Lord. Um, some of them don't, aren't, but that's just because there was a formatting issue with the website I, I used. But anyway, he says, So, um, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the LORD, all caps, is his name. Uh, the reason why LORD is in all caps, and when you read the Old Testament, uh, you maybe never have noticed this. But when you're reading the Old Testament and you see LORD in all caps, that's because the word here is Yahweh. That's, that's the word. This is God's personal name. Um, so realistically, um, it, it should be translated Yahweh. There's a whole reason why it's not translated Yahweh. The 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 basic the basic situation is that Jews were uh, terrified to write out God's name Yahweh, so they didn't. So they just wrote out. Uh, it's called the tetragram. The the um you know the Y H W H took out the vowels. Um and then, um just to further make sure they didn't profane God's name, they actually when the when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, um, the Septuagint, they instead of writing the word. YH or instead of writing YHWH, they wrote LORD. Um, and then our English translations have just carried on the tradition of substituting all caps LORD for translating Yahweh just, just to revere God's name, just, just to, for reverence. So that's why in your, in, your, in your text, in the Old Testament, when you see LORD, all caps, that's Yahweh, but just out of reverence they put LORD, which Yahweh doesn't mean LORD, but we'll talk about that in a second. So, so in these two verses, Amos reminds God's people who they are spurning, who they are resisting. He tells them, they aren't rejecting a lifeless idol made of wood or stone or metal. The God who made the constellations by the word of power, you look up into the sky tonight and you will see the belt of Orion. Who put that there? Yahweh put that there. The God who who spoke and stars came into existence. The God who takes darkness and makes it into light, and darkens the day into night. The God who causes the rain to fall, Yahweh is his name. God is telling them, I'm not like your stupid stone carvings. I'm not like your dumb golden calf. I am Yahweh. You're going to have to answer to me. Wake up. You're talking to me. Yahweh does not mean Lord. There's another word for that. Um, Yahweh literally means I am. I am. To say that your name is I am is a declaration of totality. It is a declaration that you are completely sufficient in yourself. So if you were to come up to me and you were walk through that door and you were to look at me and you were to say, uh, what's your name? And I were to say, my name is... I am. That would be blasphemy, number one. But number two, you would think this guy is like Mr. Arrogant. This guy is a total jerk. Who does this guy think he is? He's answering me by, by, by a verb? What? That makes no sense. But here, God's personal name, Yahweh, literally means I am. Because God, what he wants you to know by his personal name, is that he is entirely and totally sufficient. He is entirely and totally independent. He is his own. He is entirely within himself sufficient. He is the cosmic cause of all. God's name is I Am. The first time we see Yahweh in, the, in our Bibles is in our, in our creation account. In Genesis 2-4, Yahweh surfaces for the first time when God is in the process of making humanity Yahweh is the creator of humanity, but he is also the redeemer. When Israel was enslaved and God selected Moses to deliver them, he revealed himself as Yahweh. We, we read this account in Exodus 3, 13-15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am And we 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 take we delighted in calling God Yahweh. The reason why that song is so powerful, and the reason why it's so powerful in our text that God calls his name Yahweh is because in the old testament, Yahweh always takes that special connotation of God's covenantal love. He is their redeemer, he redeemed Israel from slavery and he will redeem them again and again. Yahweh is his name. Yahweh is the God of covenantal love. He is the creator, redeemer. In Exodus 19, 3-6, we read this, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. God wants his people to remember his name, Yahweh. He is their lover. He is their kinsman, redeemer. He is the one to deliver him. These people are in a drought. And here, it is God who can send rain. They are fixing to be judged. And here is the God that has the authority to relent from judgment. This is Yahweh, the Creator, Redeemer, the God of all. Verse 10 and 11. They hate Him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor Him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes on grain from Him, you have built houses of hewn stone. But you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, and you shall not drink their vine. So we, in, in the prophetic books especially, we see a side of God that we don't see anywhere else in, in, the, in the Bible. We see God as a pained being. In, in, in one verse, the previous verses to this, he says, I want to redeem you. I want to restore you. I'm Yahweh. And then, boom, on the flip of a hat, he's angry at them. He's, he's, he's calling them into judgment. It's kind of like when you're with your with your um, with your lover again. Speaking from what I see, not from what I experienced. Um, you you there's there's these cycles, right? Where you where you they do something and you're angry and you just get mad at them and then and then you you love them so you, you love them but you're angry. You're you're just a mess. And we see this we see this in grief, right? Whenever whenever you're in grief and let's say someone very close to you that you love very dearly dies. You go through these, like, ups and downs. One, one, one morning, you're up on the mountain, and you say, all things work together for good. I believe that. I, that's carrying me through. And then maybe you see something, or something comes to mind. And then, boom, just like that, you're down in the depths, and you're angry at God. How could you do this to me? Why'd you let this happen to me? What's going on? Where are you? And then, boom, back up to, you climb back up, and it's just up and down, up and down, because grief is like that. It, eb, it ebbs and flows, and, and you can see that uh, um, one of the most powerful books I've ever read is A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis Wright wrote one of the most powerful apologetics against the problem of evil called The Problem of Pain. Check it out. It's awesome. But C.S. Lewis, who was a great theologian, philosopher, um, and fiction writer, he, 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 he wanted to get married. He never got married. Finally, he gets married. It's like this big thing, big hurrah. Um, uh, you know, he, just, he finally gets his wife. And then his wife gets cancer and rots away to death. And Lewis writes in his journal uh, what the book, A Grief Observed, is his journal during the, during the time after his wife either is dying or right after she has passed away. I don't remember. It's been a while since I read it. But anyway, you read that book. And, and Lewis never meant for it to get published. It got published after he died. Um, but you read that book. And it's like Lewis is one day trusting God, he's great, he's God's, God's kind, he's merciful, then boom, you turn the page and he's in the depths and he's angry, he's upset. And, and this is how grief is. And here we have God, he wants to redeem them, and then boom, he's, he's angry at them again. Israel has come to a place where they hate good, and they hate those who practice good. Verse 10, he says, They hate them who approves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. They hate the expression of justice displayed by those who reprove at the gate. Remember, in in Bible times, the gate is where where legal proceedings occurred. The gate is like the courthouse. So Israel does not like justice. They hate it. They abhor those who speak the truth. When people are living in sin, they cannot stand to listen to those who, who speak the truth. It is offensive to them. They cannot stomach it. In Israel, this is the case. The people hate the truth. It is not a popular thing to be a prophet in these days. Uh, If you're a prophet and you call people out into into truth, they might just strip you naked and throw you into the sewer. It happened. It happened to God's people. The the guy bringing truth was not looked upon as, as a good guy. He was an annoyance. People hated him. Further, Israel, they treated the vulnerable and the helpless unjustly. Instead of helping them, they stepped on them to get ahead. They became rich on the backs of the poor. Because of their becoming wealthy by oppressing the poor, they built impressive houses. But God says they are never going to live in them. They have nice, pleasant vineyards with huge grapes. But because of how they got there, they're not going to enjoy the fruit of the vine. They will not drink their wine. Verse twelve and thirteen. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep such silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. God tells them, Your sins are naked before me; you cannot hide them. You refuse to help the needy. I am going to punish you. Verse fourteen and fifteen. He says, seek good. Now again, see, he was just angry at them. Now he's coming back. He's wanting them to repent. He's, he's, he's the parent. He's wanting the wayward child home. He's the lover who wants his wife to stop whoring around. He wants her home. He wants her back. He says, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts will be with you as you have said hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. God strongly beckons His people to return to Him. They don't have to be destroyed. He tells them if they will seek good, which is Himself, they will live. If they will but repent, Yahweh, the God of hosts, will be with them. The promise of God being with us the promise of God being with us and we being his people is the desire that everyone craves for. Everyone was made to be in God's presence. Ecclesiastes, one of the most philosophically sophisticated book in all of the Bible, records Solomon's struggle in this area a significant part of his struggle is his rampant hedonism that leaves him completely empty. And in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that God has put eternity in man's heart, but they have sought out many schemes. So instead, inst- I know it's cliche. I'm sorry. I don't like Christian cliches, um, but they're around for a reason. Some of them are true. Most of them are horrible, but this one's actually true. Um, so you've, you've all heard that you have a God-sized hole in your heart, right? And, and, you, and God's the only one who can feel that. That's true. That's true. That is true. Solomon says God has put eternity in man's heart. And, and most people live their lives trying to fill that void in their lives. That's why, that's why we have rampant alcoholism. That's why we have a rampant sexual, sexual abuse. That's why we have all, any, any, any sin you want. Ultimately, every sin spurns from the fact that people are looking everywhere but God to satisfy the gaping hole in their heart. St. Augustine rightly said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. All throughout the Old Testament, we have the promise that God will be our God and we will be his people. And in the New Testament, an amazing reality. In the New Testament, when someone repents of their sin and they become a Christian, they are so possessed of God and God so possesses them that God the Holy Spirit actually like comes down and descends from heaven and makes his dwelling place in the hearts of believers listen to 2 Timothy 6 6 or 2 Corinthians 6:16 6, what agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God because the Holy Spirit resides within as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be my God, and they shall be my people. Everyone in here that is a Christian has this immense privilege of being possessed by God and possessing God in the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing thing. Romans 8, 15 through 16, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is uh, more than just a hokey band from the 70s. Uh, Abba is a Greek word that means daddy, like like a little children, little child, that calls you daddy or papa. That's what's going on here. We have the spirit of adoption within us, the Holy Spirit. And by him, we can call God the Father, Papa. We can call him Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The climax of our being God's people is seen in the full restoration given to us at Revelation. In Revelation 21, 3-4, we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. How is this manifested? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God tells them that if they will just seek him, he, they will be his and he will be theirs. Verse 16 and 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there will be welling and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to welling those who are skilled in lamentation In all the vineyards there shall be welling for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Israel has a chance to repent. It's not too late. God is calling his people back to himself, but tragically they will not have it. They refuse to repent. They would rather tightly cling to their sin and be destroyed than to repent and return to God. As a result, they will be filled with mourning and pain. The, the verse 17 says, I will pass through your midst. Because they rejected, them, rejected him, God is coming to them, not as a caring father. He's not coming as a longing lover. Because they've spurned him again, he is coming as their judge. Which leads us to point two, verse 18 through 614. God sings a funeral song. God sings a funeral song. We see this in verse 18 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, with no gloom and no brightness in it? In the remainder of our text this morning, we are going to see God's funeral song for his people. He has punished them again and again, and they refuse to repent, and now he actually has to crush them. The people here we see in verse 18, they actually desire the, great, the day of the Lord. The, the underlying Hebrew here communicates a, a, a strong passion. Um, it's used elsewhere to describe like intense hunger or covetousness or desire. The, Israel desired. They were thirsty. They were hungry for the day of the Lord because they thought it was the day of the Lord where God was going to punish their enemies. But instead, God is going to use the day of the Lord as their day of punishment. There is no great and terrifying day of judgment called the day of the Lord. It, it's like it's like someone who escapes a lion. Like Let's say you're in a um, I don't know, you're in, I was going to say Bloomfield, that makes no sense. You're in Africa, there's a lion, Uh, there's this lion, it's like at this point, it's like, well, well, it's over for me. You're not going to outrun a lion, but let's just pretend for sake of argument, you somehow, you're like, you're in in peak physical shape like me, and you outrun the lion. So you finally get away from the lion, and you're sitting there by the road, you're getting your breath, you're drinking coffee, because that's what keeps you going in life, and all of a sudden you look over, and out from the bushes steps a bear, it's... It's over, man. I mean, somehow you escape the lion, you're not escaping the bear. But let's just pretend you do escape the bear. You, you escape the lion, you escape the bear, now you, you get home. You get home, you drink a glass of water, you lean against the wall because you're exhausted, and would you have it, there's a snake and it bites you on the wrist and you die anyway. Okay? It's, <laughs> it's like the worst luck ever. This is like, this is horrible. Uh, this is someone who can't, who can't get a break. The point, here's God's point. You cannot escape the day of judgment. It's coming for you. You might, you might somehow, you might be 300 pounds, and the famine's not going to affect you. Uh, you. You might stay at home and not go to war, and you're not going to feel my judgment. But the day is going to come where my judgment is unavoidable. It's inevitable. And that's what he's saying. 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God again returns to the topic of superficial worship. Worship Is done for them. Israel is doing worship and sacrifice and in song, but not in heart and not in obedience. God isn't at all interested in in Israel's fabricated, superficial worship. God isn't interested in making in, in his people making a show of their religious expression. The people of Israel were living a life that was characterized by injustice, poor treatment of others, and unrighteousness prevalent sin in their own lives. They had the mindset that they could live any way they wanted and then come to worship, and somehow worshiping God enthusiastically would make up for their sin. But God would not be appeased with right form. He isn't interested in people saying that they love God and singing to him how great they are. God wants people's hearts, and he wants them to live a life of obedience. Hosea 6.6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Psalm 51, 16 through 17, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. The application for all of us here is obvious. God isn't interested in our worship if we aren't loving him with our whole hearts. God isn't interested in our worship if we aren't living a life of obedience. Having the right heart in worship is just as important to God as having the right form. Christians in the church today in broader evangelicalism have a Superficial perspective, a shallow understanding of worship. By and large, people think that worship is equivalent to the singing part of the service. So, so you may have said, oh, well, the worship was at the beginning and now we're doing the preaching. No, that's wrong. People live like heathens for six days and then they come to church and they sing. They might really even get into it. They might raise their hands, they might clap, they might cry. We might look at them and say, that's a worshiper, but that is not true worship. Singing is an equivalent to worship because worship isn't simply an event on Sunday. Worship is a lifestyle. Paul in Romans 12, 1-2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In the Old Testament, people would come with their doves or their grain or their animals, and they they would offer that on the altar as a sacrifice. But Paul tells us, we do not... Go to the altar to offer lamb, as good as it is. Uh, that's That's not worship. You live every day as a living sacrifice. You live every day being conformed to Christ, furthering yourself from the world. You live every day conforming to Christ. This is a living sacrifice. This is worship. As Christians, we are a living sacrifice. To be a Christian is to die to yourself. To be a Christian is to be one who has submitted to Jesus as Lord. He is your master and you live every day in obedience to him. Our being a living sacrifice is our spiritual worship. Our entire lives are to be lived as a living sacrifice. Our entire lives every day is to be a living sacrifice because our entire life is worship. If we are not living as a living sacrifice, if we are not living a life of obedience, when we Come here on Sunday and sing praises to God. We are disgusting Him; we aren't bringing Him pleasure. This text says that God hates. Him. Doesn't matter how much we, if you're not living a life of obedience, it's offensive to Him. He doesn't want to hear it. Five twenty-five to twenty-six. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? So, so he tells them, you guys were in the wilderness, you were under punishment, and you offered me sacrifice back then. Remember, there was the tabernacle. He says, that's not how you know me. That's not how you have a relationship with me. That's not how you worship me. It's not equivalent to sacrifice. Worship is not equivalent to singing. Singing is part of worship, but it's not equivalent. Do you understand? Living your life as a living sacrifice, that is worship. And part of that is the Sunday morning, singing and hearing God's word. So God says... You, 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 looked out other, you sought out other gods? You Siketh, your king, and keon your star god? You took them out? Fine. Those are your gods. You take them. I'm sending you into exile, and they can come with you. That's what God says. 6, 1 through 3. Notice, notice, notice God's offense is taken even further in chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the noblemen of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Calna and see and go there from Hamath the Great and there go to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. So we see Israel. They're, they're, they should see Judgment is coming. They should be aware that God's going to come down on them. But are they? No. They're not scared. They're not nervous. They're reclining on a couch. They're, 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 they're chilling. Verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock. They're not eating mutton. They're not eating hard meat. They're eating lambs. They're eating the best meat, the succulent meat. And calves from the midst of the stall who sing. Again, we're returning to worship that God really is offended by people who sing passionately but don't live in obedience he says who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like david invent for themselves instruments of music he's saying look at these people they're going about their business like i'm not fixing to uh send the assyrians in to wipe them out they're chilling they're laying on their beds they're eating good food they're singing praises to me verse six who drink wine in bowls they're not going to saint Clair's and getting a sample they're not getting a, uh, I don't know what size, three ounce, three ounce, whatever. They're not, they're not drinking their wine in ounces. They're not, they're not getting a, a shooter of liquor. They're they taking their alcohol by the bowl. They drink wine in bowls. They anoint themselves with the finest oils. They're not grieved. God says, therefore, because they're just living like nothing matters and they're not going to face judgment, they're going to be the, the first ones to be judged. They're going to be the first ones that go into exile Verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself and declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up, all, deliver up the city and all that is in it. God hates their pride. He hates their arrogance. He hates that they just think that it's fine. He's going to judge them. 9 and 10, if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. And one's relatives, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him to bring the bones of his house. And you shall say who is in the uttermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. He shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. The, the people are going to be so annihilated. They're going to be so wiped out. They're going to be so fall under God's judgment and wrath that they are going to be terrified to even see God's say God's name. And this is a tragedy here. Because remember, God told Moses, I want my people to know me by name. I want my people to call me Yahweh. But because they've fallen so far from God and fallen into so much judgment, they are terrified of even God's goodness, even God's role as a covenant lover. Verse 11 and 12, For behold, the Lord comes. commands, and the great house shall be brought down into fragments, and the little house into bits. God is going to just annihilate them. He's going to destroy them. Verse 12, do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? So God asks them, do you, do you, uh, when, when you're plowing the land uh, to, to plant seed, do you look at uh, a concrete slab and say, that's where I'm going to plant my potatoes? No, it's stupid. It's not what you do. God is saying, that's not what you do, but this is what you guys are doing. Why? Because you turn justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. The, the people are blind. They don't see it. They're, they're doing stupid things like running a plow through concrete. Verse 13 and 14. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnium for ourselves? So, so God is, again, he's, a, he's offended at their pride. They're saying, we're fine. Look, we captured this city by ourselves. God's saying, for behold... I will rise up against you, a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Labo to the brook of Ereba. God tells him, yeah, it's fine that you, you conquered a city. I'm going to come up against you. I'm going to bring a nation to you. That nation is going, that nation is going to overrun you from, from Labo Hamath to the brook of Ereba. And And what's going to happen to Israel is that the Assyrians are going to come and wipe them out. Now, what are we to make of this? Where do we make of this? People are living in, under God's wrath. Okay, God's wrath still remains today, 2016. Seven, whoa, 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 2017, 2017. God's wrath still remains. Um, some of you this morning are living under God's wrath. Now, this does not mean that you're going to go out into the parking lot and a spear is going to come across the parking lot from an Assyrian soldier and take you out. That's not the form. We all know that we are all under God's wrath because the Bible teaches this very clearly. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So everyone is born a sinner. Everyone will face wrath, will face punishment in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. However, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that He gave His, his only begotten Son for us. where No one has to face God's wrath. There is a way of escape. Uh, 1 John 2.2, 2, we are told that Christ is a propitiation for us, not only for us, but for the sins of the whole world. Christ died to appease God's wrath. That's, that's what propitiate means, to appease God's wrath. So God's wrath still stands, but Christ took it for us. He bore God's wrath. Isaiah 53, three, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. The reality is that for every person, they are born a sinner, they are on their way to hell, they will face God's wrath. But like Israel, nobody has to face God's wrath because Christ bore God's wrath supremely for us. He died in our place. He died as our substitute. And the only, the only way to escape escape God's wrath, is to be united to Jesus. How is one united to Jesus? One is united to Jesus by their repentance from their sin, they're asking God to forgive them, and they're believing, they're trusting their faith that He will. If you want to escape God's wrath, Jesus paved the way for you. And all you have to do to receive the benefits from that, to be covered by His blood, is to repent. None of us are in Israel, and none of us are going to see the Assyrian army, but there are three things that we must take away from this text this morning. First, the question before us is, are we living righteous lives? Are we walking with God and being transformed into his likeness? Are you an advocate of justice? Do you protect the helpless? Second, Are we worshiping God with our entire lives as a living sacrifice or are we just going through the religious motions? Are you here this morning simply because you think that you're going to appease God by your presence here? If you are, you're not. In fact, you're being here having the attitude that you're going to make God favorable towards you by being here is actually offensive to Him. This is something that must be restored through repentance. God will not accept our songs of praises if we are not living a life that conforms to his gospel. Thirdly, and more importantly, for the believers in this room this morning, is there anything in your life that you must repent of? If you are a believer, your sin separates you from having a full walk with God. This is restored through your repenting. If you are not a believer, if you're not a Christian, but you're here this morning, it's no accident that you're here. You're here solely because of God's good providence that he directed you here. If you are not a believer and you've never repented of your sin and you've never asked God to forgive you, do not delay. Now is the time. So, we approach this text with three big questions. One, are we living lives of righteousness? Are we living lives of justice? Two, are we living a life of worship? Not just singing. Are we living a life as a living sacrifice? And third, is there something that in your life that you should repent of? And if you're not a Christian, You definitely have some things you need to repent of. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We don't want to be like your people Israel. We don't want to spurn your goodness. This morning, you've called us to seek you. You've called us to repent of the sin in our life, and we want to do it. And this morning, I'm sure you heard the prayers of your people asking you for forgiveness. Father, we thank you that you are good, that you are kind, that you want us to to live life in you, to experience the full range of the gospel we thank you that we can have this fellowship. We thank you that we can have this joy in you. Only you satisfy, only you bring fulfilling pleasure, Father. Like Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So, Father, this morning I pray for your people. Those in here who are believers, God, I ask that you would impress upon them the need to be seeking you out in your word, to be look, to communicating with you in prayer to find their heart's devotion and their, their satisfaction in you, so that all of us in here this morning can be like David in Psalm 1611, who said, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, you offer us a feast of pleasure, a feast of joy, and I pray that all of us would enter into your presence to find this. Father, if there's, no one, if there's someone in here who is not a believer... I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would rip out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, that you would give them new birth, you would regenerate them, you would break them, you would show them the need to be in a right relationship with you. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We thank you for it. As we go out this morning, I pray that you help all of us to live lives that are conformed to you. Help us to live a life as as a living sacrifice. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.